0: Well, good morning, and welcome to All Saints Day. Uh, that's not a, a holiday that we typically would celebrate or observe in this church, but it is one that is recognized worldwide. And today is November first. That's the day that is observed. I think it's just it works out well that Reformation Sunday or Saturday, I mean, uh, Reformation Day is just the preceding day. Uh, It's celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Anglican Church, Lutheran Church, Methodist Church, and a few other churches. Uh, And it varies somewhat from church to church, but basically it's just honoring the the dead saints that have preceded them. Uh, Some general saints like the people that might have led you to Christ and some other saints like St. Paul and St. Peter and people like that. Today's also an exciting day because yesterday or early this morning we turned our clocks back. Wasn't that great? Yay! Fourteen clocks in our household would have to be turned back, and I turned each one of them with a big smile on my face. Next spring, it will not be a smile on my face when I turn them the other way, but anyway. Well, I'm not that familiar with All Saints Day. I had to look that up and read about it on the internet. I'm very familiar with the events that transpired last night, which are Halloween, and involves trick-or-treating, because my wife Lula did in-home child care for 40 years, so Halloween was a busy night at our house with lots of little kids trick-or-treating us, and uh, it's kind of interesting, because out of that 40 years, we never had happen what this one lady wrote that happened to her last year at Halloween. She said, She answered the door, and there was a a young boy there, and he was dressed up like a pirate. He had the hat on, the eye patch, the coat, the boots, and the sword. And and so, you know, know, she thought that was pretty cute. She says, well, what do we have here, a pirate? She said the boy paused a few seconds and then said, uh, in a very matter-of-fact voice, I'm a kid, lady. This is just a costume. (laughs) So... That's never happened to us. We've, we've had some interest, And last night was a little different. We didn't have received kids into the house like we normally do, so it was a little different. There, we saw some of them out in the parking, in the driveway, but for the most part, we just handed out the candy. And surprisingly, we were surprised. We put out, I think, 40 bags of candy, and our fear was that maybe some kid would come along early and just dump it all and leave, but that didn't happen. Uh... We had, I think, I think there were 17 bags officially left, but 16 by the time I went to bed. (laughs) So, talk about that more, the next message that I bring. But, uh, anyway, Uh, I welcome the opportunity again to bring to you a message from uh, 1 Thessalonians. This is the third message that I have brought. Uh, The next two that follow this, the next one will be on sanctification, I've been working on that. I kind of look forward to it, but there's some personal aspects of sanctification that's going to make it a challenge for me. So with that, uh, you can look forward to that. Then the last one in the book of Thessalonians that that I will look at will be on, uh, there was a question about when's Jesus coming back? You told us he was going to come back. When's he coming back? He hasn't shown up yet. What are we supposed to do? And so Paul, Writes back some instructions and some advice on what's going to happen there, which means we'll be talking about the second coming of Christ. We're talking about the rapture, and you know which view of the rapture is the correct view of the rapture. And uh, I'll let you wait till I figure out which one I want, to, which side I want to fall on. But I will give you all all the views of the rapture that I'm aware of, and you can maybe make your determination. But this morning we're finishing the third chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians and we'll be reading from page 986 of the Black Bibles or uh, 1 Thessalonians will start in chapter 2 verses 13 through the end of chapter 3. And I want to just briefly talk about what Paul has already done. It's interesting the commentators say about these first three chapters it's unlike Paul because he spends the entire three chapters commending the people, the Thessalonian church, for what they've done, and he lists some of the things they've done, and commending them for their faith, and their willingness to suffer, and the affliction that he prepared them for, and now they are experiencing, and there's no words of criticism or uh, correction or anything like that in the first three chapters. That comes in fourth and fifth chapters, so it's kind of an interesting take on Paul's normal way of uh, writing to the churches. But this morning, I want to finish that portion of that letter. And so, but to do that, I want to just touch a little bit on some of the things I mentioned in the earlier messages. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but in the very first chapter, one of the first things that Paul does after a brief prayer for them, he commends them for their work of faith. And this was a faith that was active and it was alive. It was a vibrant faith. Uh, so not only were their lives transformed, and people could witness that, but they were also faithfully sharing their, the gospel message with other people, their friends, their neighbors, people that didn't even know. P- throughout the region of Macedonia and Achaia, he says, you shared the gospel message. Then there was a labor of love. That's a genuine love for one another and an arduous love for the gospel and a love that didn't know any limits. So the word agape is first introduced to, uh, to the Bible through this type of love, it's, it's kind of love that uh, is, is a deep love. It's not the type of love like an erotic love or a brotherly love, but it's a deep love for one another and a concern for one another. And then the third thing he commended them for was a steadfast hope, which the expectant return of Christ. And their faith was in Christ. Their faith wasn't in an idol or in philosophies or something of that nature. So those are three of the things that he began the letter with. And then he also commended them for recognizing, and we'll go into this a in little more detail, but he recognized the, they recognized the message as the gospel. It was the word of God. It was not the word of man. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in, the, in the message today. Uh, then in the second chapter, he talks about how he treated them, he and the other apostles, how they treated them gently like a nursing mother, and how he ministered to them, disciplined them, and trained them up like a father would his children. And so he's showing his pastoral love for them early on in this letter. Then before we get really into the main body, I want to just take just a minute and talk about how we got to this point in this letter, because I think it helps us to understand what happened when Paul was in Thessalonians. Thessalonica, when he uh, back up a second, he and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica directly from Philippi and if you recall that's in Acts 16, if you recall that while they were in Philippi Paul and Silas were ill treated by the Philippian officials, they were beaten they were imprisoned and uh, the earthquake, we have the Philippian jailer being converted have all those events, but when they came to Thessalonica Paul and Silas still showed those marks of being beaten and ill-treated in Philippi. And so the people of Thessalonica had a visible representation of what suffering for the gospel might be like, and they would get the opportunity to do that uh, as soon as Paul left. But then uh, when he got to Thessalonica, and I'm just going to read briefly from chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Luke writes that Paul went, as his usual practice, to the synagogue. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Then Luke goes on to write that uh, some of them, meaning the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and others as such as the devout Greeks joined them and not a few leading women. Uh, but we know that the Jews, Paul or Luke writes, Jews wrote were jealous of what happened here because now they were losing not only converts, but they were also losing resources, finances. And so they were, and they might have thought they were defending their, their their own message, but the reality of it was they were agents of Satan. But Luke says that uh, those Jews that were jealous took some wicked men of the rabble. We've heard that maybe already a few times in Judges, the wicked men of the rabble. Uh, and anyway, they formed a mob, attacked the house of Jason, and uh, they were hoping to find Paul, but they didn't, but they brought Jason out. And uh, anyway, the Thessalonian officials, not wanting any riots or anything, imposed a surety bond and released Jason. But anyway... In verse seventeen, Paul or Luke writes. I keep getting Luke and Paul missed up here, uh, but anyway, Luke writes: the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and Paul again began his ministry there. And the Bereans uh, listened with it with great interest, but they also checked what his message said against the scriptures to see if it was so. Well, when the Jews in Thessalonica found out that Paul was there, they came and created a disturbance, and Paul went on to Athens, and uh, he went to Athens, he was there alone for a while, and then uh, finally Silas and Timothy rejoined him, and uh, as we'll see here in a minute, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to both check on this church and to minister to them. And then when Paul rejoined, uh, when Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth, he gave a report, and 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians is a response to that. And so beginning at uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, we'll read as follows. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This morning I want us to look at Paul in the light of three hats that he might have worn. Paul as the preacher, as a pastor, and a man of prayer. First let's look at him as the preacher. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, And we thank God continually for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. James Grant and his message on this passage of Scripture opens with this statement Preaching has fallen on hard times. The question that is being asked is preaching necessary? We can no longer assume that preaching is the main way in which God communicates to us and instructs us through his church. Grant then contends contends that preaching is being replaced by several different methods of communication. Singing is one of those which is supposed to take the place of preaching by either convicting or encouraging the people. Drama has also gained popularity, he says, instead of the preacher Preaching, they have a play with people acting out a story from scripture. He also saw an increased use of dialogue, and that's not something that I'm really familiar with, uh, but the congregation being encouraged to be engaged with and involved in the message. And then the use of PowerPoint uh, presentations would replace the message altogether. Well, these were Grant's observations in his message we delivered in 2011, and uh, I wonder what he would think of some of the churches yet today. This church is faithful to boldly proclaim and accurately, faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord through preaching. So that doesn't mean that singing isn't important. I think we all agree that we enjoy the opportunity, even if it's limited to being able to sing now in our worship service. And drama can be a very effective tool in helping with the communication, but it's not the main way that God chooses to communicate the gospel. As far as I'm concerned, PowerPoint is for the high-tech people, uh, not me. Uh, I couldn't do PowerPoint. Uh, My grandson offered to help me, and I decided the amount of time it takes me to learn to do PowerPoint, I could do something much more useful, like play golf, Uh, but anyway. Mm. Uh, John Calvin, and I'll quote this. It was one of the commentaries, but John Calvin wrote this, and he says, and I quote, when a preacher who is duly called and appointed by God speaks, it is as if God is speaking through him. The word of God is not distinguished from the word of the prophet. God wishes to be heard through the voice of his ministers, end quote. In other words, when the minister speaks while preaching, it's as if Christ is speaking through him. I think it's a very sobering thought, and I would hope that preachers take that seriously. I know ours do. That they do not take lightly the opportunity to come before you and to open up the word of God and to speak from it. And I don't take it lightly either. This is not something that I just called up and said, hey, Pastor Mike, I'd like to get up in front and talk to people today. Uh, and he wasn't anxious to come back and do it this morning without any preparation either. It takes work. It takes work. Like I said, I'm already starting on another on the next uh, message So it it takes time. The word of God needs to be very carefully handled. And I realize that there are different churches, different denominations, uh, different views on different scriptures, but the basic element of the gospel, I think, is unchanged. And we need to be very clear when we proclaim what that gospel message is. Then the secondary doctrines that we have, they're important, we believe they're important, uh, but we are more concerned with the clear proclamation of the gospel message, and, and that's that's our purpose for being here. That's our purpose for being here. So, uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to touch just a moment on the important what Paul thought was important about equipping preachers. Uh, if you want to turn to page 946 in the black pew Bibles, that's Romans 10 verses 13 and through 15, and it's probably familiar to some of you. Uh, but, but Paul is talking about equipping people to preach and the importance of people preaching. So he writes, beginning verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach lest they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul is clearly declaring the need for equipping preachers to preach the word. And having equipped them, then send them. So so Paul preached the word of God to the Thessalonians. They received it as the word of God. And then they became imitators of the word, willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But where did Paul get this message? And by what authority did he preach? We know there was no New Testament at that time. All they had were the scriptures, which later would become what we would refer to as the Old Testament. There were some testimonies from eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. So let's turn to, if you go to page 972 in your, in your black Bibles, we'll turn to Galatians 1, 11 through 23. And this is an op- occasion again where Paul is defending the authenticity And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my brothers, of my, of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by, my, by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, I went to Arabia but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus and I'm sorry I'm ending at 17. Originally, I was going to go to 23 but 17 is a good place to end. but Realize Paul received by direct revelation. Uh, When I was in the army, I was a medic and when I was stationed in uh, San Francisco, I was a medic at Letterman Hospital out there, it was an army hospital. And because of my EIU education, I was qualified instead of someone who changed bedpans, I could work on the psychiatric ward. And I met on the psychiatric ward several messiahs. They didn't look anything like the messiah, I thought. They had no biblical authority about them, but they believed they were a messiahs. One of the key ways to test someone who believes they're a messiah is ask them about the scriptures. Jesus knew the scriptures well false messiahs often don't do that. So. But anyway, but Paul received it by direct revelation. Interestingly, this man who had advanced in Judaism now because his eyes were open could look at those scriptures in a new light and see how Christ was being proclaimed in the Older Testament in those scriptures. And he could utilize that when he's witnessing primarily to the Jews that also encouraged him to speak to the Gentiles as well. And the message must have been effective because he had a dynamic impact on his part of the world. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, a couple of more words about <coughs> the authority of scripture and the usefulness of it. Uh, me. The writer of Hebrews, and these are going to be a couple of familiar, familiar passages for you, but The writer of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verse 12, writes, (coughs) Excuse me a second. Uh, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Then Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. For the man of God may be complete, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then Paul also charged Timothy to preach the word, which we read in chapter 4, verse 2. Whenever I I see that preach the word, and someday I'll tell you my introduction into southern gospel music, but... uh, I think of a song by the Southern Gospel Quartet Group, uh, Gold City. And the title of it is, Preach the Word. And I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to read the chorus rather than sing it. Although I will tell you that as I am reading it, my inside voice is going to be singing it to me. uh, And it'll it'll sound beautiful in there. Uh, But it doesn't sound good if I try it out here. But here's the chorus. Preach the Word. Preach the Cross. Preach Redemption to a lost and dying world. Lift your voice unashamed of the gospel of his name until all have heard preach the cross. Preach the word, I mean, preach the word. That's a very powerful message. It's a challenge to those who are preachers, are pastors, a responsibility of handling the word. It's also a challenge to us as individuals. When we have the opportunity to proclaim the Word of God, we need to take that opportunity and do that. So, and I, I encounter this a lot, but I, uh, I just had to bring this in. St. Francis of Ephesus is a, supposed to have said, Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Uh, that's bothered me for a long time. Pastor Mike has. Has mentioned this on more than one occasion uh, that that's not true. Uh, just to be safe, I went and checked the internet again, and uh, his biographers claim that he never said anything like that. And actually, just the opposite would have been said of St. Francis of Assisi. Francis would preach to anybody. As he was traveling along the road, people would travel with him, he would be proclaiming the gospel. If he came into a community, if people would listen to him, he'd proclaim the gospel. He believed in preaching the gospel. The next message will talk about how you live out that gospel message. But, but for today, preaching the word of God is important. And it's still, I believe, God's best way of communicating what the gospel message is. So Paul was, first and foremost, a preacher. But he was also a pastor. And pastors are shepherds. And like shepherds, there are many good pastors And like some shepherds, there are some bad ones as well. John Stott, the 20th century uh, Anglican priest and theologian, uh, wrote about two different types of pastors, and each have their strengths and weaknesses. One, he says, there are those that are great champions of the truth and are anxious to fight for it, but display little love. Others are great advocates of love, but have no equal commitment to the truth. And then Stott concludes, truth is hard if not softened by love. And love is soft if it's not strengthened by truth. Paul had the ability to do both of those. He was obviously a champion of the truth. If you read through his letters, he's defending the truth of the gospel message. But he also had a great love for his people. He loved the nation of Israel. He loved those people. He would do anything for them to bring them to salvation and then God sent him to the Gentiles an unclean people as far as the Jews were concerned what are you doing hanging around these people he had a love for them because God put that love in his heart for those people as well so I want to look at just two sections of this scripture this morning as evidence of Paul's pastoral ministry and heart Uh, We'll look at chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and then we'll look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Beginning in verse 17, we read, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul grieved at his being torn away. The Greek word for torn away is similar to what the word we use for orphan. Uh, That's how dramatic he felt it was. Uh, He dearly loved this young group of believers. And his sudden forced departure troubled him as did his inability to return to them because in the brief time he was there he had witnessed transformed lives people turning from idol worship to worshiping the one true god and paul had wished for more time to pastor them but that was not the case But questions came to paul's mind were they continuing in their faith or had satan caused them to doubt and turn back to their formal life have they been able to endure the suffering from their own countrymen that the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea had? What the believers think his sudden departure and his not returning meant he was not sincere and didn't care for them. And Paul was also concerned that false teachers would soon invade the church and lead it away from the freeing truth of the gospel. So Paul writes them of his desire to come and notes that Satan hindered him. Now Paul doesn't share what Satan had done to prevent this, only that he charged Satan with, with having done that. And then Paul closes this portion of the letter with a reminder that the Thessalonians were his hope, his joy, his crowning <clears throat> crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we must be careful about using the words pride or proud, but in this case I think we can safely say that Paul was proud of what his church had done even before Timothy's report came to him. His report on the church, young church, Timothy's report, was of great encouragement to Paul. But another aspect of his pastoral heart is in chapter 3, the first five verses. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in our faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, i sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul's concern was so great uh, and so that he took the extreme measure of sending Timothy to encourage this church and to continue the ministry that he'd began there and then to bring your report back to just what the condition of that church was. Now, we might think that wasn't that big a deal, but it wasn't an easy decision for Paul to make. Uh, he says in earlier other places that Timothy was, very extreme, it was extremely useful to him and he loved him not only as a brother in Christ, but as a father would have, have loved his son. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians that sending Timothy was a sacrifice for him, which I think further demonstrates his pastoral heart for them. And Paul realized that the young church was facing extreme persecution, affliction, temptation to turn from the newfound faith to their old lives. But Timothy's presence could help them not only prepare for and endure these uh, persecutions, but also to prepare them to resist the tempter and the false teachers. He concludes this part of the letter with these words, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and, your, and our labor would have been in vain. I think Paul clearly was a pastor for the church. So we've looked at Paul the preacher and Paul the pastor, and now Paul the prayer, a man of prayer. Having written about Timothy's good report, Paul takes a moment to write a brief prayer for them, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our ways to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And later in this letter, Paul would encourage the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Prayer, simply communicating with God the Father through Jesus the Son with the aid of the Holy Spirit. This tool is available to all believers. And, used, and it is, I think, little used or appreciated. Jesus prayed. Paul prayed. He wrote several prayers into his letters. And I've heard of saints that were homebound unable to participate and serve in other forms of ministry, but committing themselves to prayer. And I've shared before, but I have a morning prayer time. And in that morning prayer time, it's kind of a general time of prayer. There are a number of people that I pray for. Uh, Some of them is just a general blessing. Some have some specific needs. And and I remember them on a daily basis. But then there's another type of prayer. Uh, and, And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, it's an intense prayer. Earlier this week, the Sterlings reached out to some of us uh, that they had a concern that uh, their grandson, Oliver, had, high, had spiked a high fever and looked to be headed to the hospital. And could we pray? And so uh, we took the opportunity then to pray specifically for that situation, pray That God would intervene in the healing process that he would use, if necessary, the medical professionals and the proper treatment. And that he would be able to return home and the family could be reunited again. So that's a specific, intense form of prayer that I think is often underutilized. Uh, And I would encourage you to do that. Develop a prayer prayer life. Um, And also, this is for everybody here today. If you have a prayer need, you let us know about it. There are a number of people in this church that would dearly love to pray for you. If you have a specific need, don't be ashamed. Let us know. We'll pray for you. We are happy to pray for you. And it gives me an opportunity to introduce another Southern Gospel song uh, into the message this morning. Make believers out of you people yet. So uh, anyway, this is from a group called the Dub Brothers. It's, It's been a few years ago, but it's called I Can Pray. And again, I won't sing it to you. But it begins, you say I'm not able, I'm too young or I'm too old, I can't sing or teach, and no office or title do I hold. Lord, what can I do? For I want to do my part, and I want to help the hurting with all of my heart. I can pray. I can pray. So I encourage you, begin a prayer life. Start out easy, four or five minutes. Just tell God how you're feeling. The surprising thing is, you tell God how you're feeling. First off, he already knows how you're feeling better than you do. But secondly, as you begin to talk to God, God will begin to speak to you in a number of ways. So, so we looked at Paul the preacher, the pastor, and the prayer. And I would say that this church is blessed with, we have two pastors that are also preachers and also men of prayer. So we're, we're blessed. I wouldn't call them Paul, but they're in that category. But anyway, I want a couple of comments before I close. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, first, I encourage you to come back next Sunday. I believe we'll be back in Judges. Ready for Samson? Samson. Okay, so that'll be interesting. Samson. Uh, so, but anyway, I encourage you to come back for that. But if you're here, you've not placed your faith in Christ. Maybe someone invited you to come today and say, hey, I want you to come to this church. I want you to listen to these people tell us about God. I want you to know that the 2,000-year-old message that Paul delivered to the church in Thessalonica is just as valid and just as valuable and just as real as it was to those people back then. And it can transform your life just as it transformed the lives of those Thessalonian believers. If you find yourself in a situation where there's just a disquieting inside you and you can't find something To take care of that, and we're going to talk about some of that next time, Uh, there is a God who loves you deeply and cares deeply about you and has made a provision for you that you can get that out of your system. God does care deeply for you, but he doesn't accept our sin, so there has to be and accommodate, there has to be a process by which that sin can be removed. And that process is the same message that Paul was preaching that we preach yet here today. Christ Jesus died for our sins. And because of that, we have a new life. Now we're going to sing a song. I asked Jared if we could, <clears throat> could do this song. It's by Eric Shoemaker, All Gone. I think most of you are familiar with it. I just thought this song fits this message about as well as I could think. I couldn't think of another song that would fit that. But This song also is a preparation for communion for, the, for those of you that are baptized believers. And I want us to want you to pay close attention to this song because I know from experience that sometimes when you come to communion, you're thinking, Lord, I shouldn't be taking communion for what I've done this past week. Or, Lord, I've got all these things going on in my life, and that should disqualify me from taking communion. I want you to pay very close attention to this song. I think it can open you up to the reality that Christ died for our sins. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You catch that? No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So I think that's a pretty clear message that this is what we need to do is turn our life to Christ and experience the joy of new freedom. Now I'm going to follow the he, lead of uh, Vodi Bachman uh, on the length of a sermon. His words were stand up, speak up shut up, you're done. So I'm going to close with a prayer and then we'll sing. Thank you, Father, for your gospel. The good news of your son being the only acceptable sacrifice to completely pay the price for our sins. May we be like Paul in carefully handling your word, sacrificially loving your people and committing to praying without ceasing. May we also respond to the gospel as the Thessalonians did with transformed lives, turning from idols to you, the one true and living God. And Father, as we sing this song, open our eyes to the truth that our sins truly are all gone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.